Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Hey, good morning. We want to just welcome you in today, and I want to start with a simple truth. It's something that you'll all be able to recognize and identify with, and it's just this, that as Christians, we don't get a pass from difficult circumstances in life. Uh, That when we think about all of the things that go on in life, the trials we walk through, the heartache that we experience, there is no pass from those things for us. Just because we follow Christ, we would love to think that. And as Christians, in our minds sometimes, in a perfect situation, we would just have God completely remove all of our troubles from us so that we could go through life unscathed and untouched and just experiencing goodness and glory all the time. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not how God operates. And when we see these things come into our life, a lot of times what we can easily do is ask the question of God, where are you? Where are you when I'm going through this heartache? Where are you when I'm going through this hardship? Where are you when things hurt? Where are you when when people demand of me things that I'm not willing to give? Where are you, God? And so when we think about these things, we want God to make our lives worry-free, but that's not how he operates. It's not how God, number one, reveals his glory to us and to the world. It's not how he grows our faith. And it's also not how God chooses to refine us and to sanctify us to be more like his son, Jesus. And so we're going to see that all play out this morning in scriptures. We're journeying through the book of Daniel, and we've now hit Daniel chapter 3. We're going to see all of this unfold. And what we're going to find today is that where last week we saw Daniel uh, interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, he showed God's wisdom in being able to do that. The king had determined, and the, the magistrates, the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, all of these guys in the king's court had told him, no man on earth can do what you've asked. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He wanted them to tell him what the dream was and then interpret it for him. They said, nobody can do that. Not even the gods can do what you've asked. They don't listen to us. And then Daniel comes in and says, well, I I know the God who can do these things, the God of the impossible. And God revealed himself through wisdom by allowing Daniel to know the dream and interpret it. Today, we're going to see God not move necessarily in wisdom, but in power. God's going to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonian empire in power. And so I want you just to look at this with me, starting in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 3. Here's what we find. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. It was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, 
As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and they worshiped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, in Daniel 2, again, just like we mentioned a minute ago, King Nebuchadnezzar had been uh, disturbed by a dream that he had had. No one could interpret the dream, but God gave Daniel the ability to know what the dream was and then also to interpret it to tell him what was going on. And so with this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw an enormous statue. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. And God had told Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, the head of gold represented him. That was him. He was the king of kings. He had the greatest place of importance in all of the world. And then in the rest of the statue, the remaining body parts were made of other metals, less significant and diminishing in value as it went down the body. And so he says, there are other kingdoms that are going to come after you but you're the most significant kingdom. And these other kingdoms are going to be lesser and they're going to diminish in value. They're not going to have the same authority and power that you have. And so what we find in this then is that you think that something like that might humble Nebuchadnezzar for the rest of his life to go, God has given me this place of authority as king. He set me up as the the golden head of, of the kingdoms of the earth. And yet what we find here is that Nebuchadnezzar, some years have passed potentially. We don't know. There's not a historical marker that's between chapters two and three. So this could be... Uh, Uh, relatively soon after his dream that was interpreted by Daniel, but it could also be 15 to 20 years later, as much as 15 to 20 years have passed by the time this takes place. And so what we find here is that instead of being humbled by Yahweh, being humbled by the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as time has gone on, the king says, man, that dream just keeps sticking in my mind. And I keep seeing that statue, that image, the one that's huge and enormous and, and it's got this golden head and all these other things. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds his own statue. He builds his own image, right? And so we find this. It says the king had a dream that his head was of gold. The constructed image that he made was entirely overlaid with gold. And so we're told that in this plain of Dura outside of Babylon, in the province of Babylon, that he creates this statue. It's 90 feet high. And it's nine feet wide. That's enormous. And so it says he doesn't just do this in order to have something that represents his dream. He asks people, in fact, he forces people to worship the image. He sets it up as if it's a God. And so you start to see the people of the provinces of Babylon being told and instructed to come and worship before it. In fact, when you see this multiple times, twice, as he does this, as he goes through, it says they summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come. So the satraps, prefects, governors, and it just lists them all again. And you kind of go, why in the world does it need to just continue repeating this list of things? Well, here's why I think that's true. I think that, that they do this, they record it this way to show that everyone is coming to this place and that there is an expectation that in coming that you're all going to conform and do the same thing. The, presec, the, the prefects, the advisors, the satraps, the administrators, everybody's going to be there. And he says, they're all going to conform to do what Nebuchadnezzar has asked. But I want you to see this. To to disobey the order of the king in this uh, time would be an unthinkable thing for anyone to do. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered so much of the world at this point, and he's brought people just like the Jewish people that we've talked about from the first week of this series. When he would conquer an area, he would bring people from that area to Babylon. 
And so there are people from literally all over the known world at this time who have been brought to Babylon, and now he's put them into his service as the king and into his kingdom, and now he's going to force them to worship. And here's what I want you to see in verse 6. It's not uh, free will worship, it's coerced. So look at this. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And so if you like taking notes and want to write some things down, here's the first thing that I would tell you this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar requires worship of his image by force, where God offers us free will. It's a choice to either worship or reject him. And so when we think about worshiping God, we think about having an opportunity to do that and freely being chosen to do that. But just as we looked at last week, for Nebuchadnezzar, this is completely within his character. He's a rough guy. He is a mean guy. And so when you see this, we know that he would demand the loyalty of his subjects no matter how brutal it has to be. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 22, when Jeremiah is writing about some men who are making prophecies about the Jewish people who are in captivity in Babylon, and they're saying things that are misleading. They're saying things that go against what God has revealed to Jeremiah. And so here's what Jeremiah says. Because of them, these false prophets... All the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. And so Jeremiah tells us this is consistent with the character of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you don't do what he says, he will kill you. Last week, we saw that he told the, uh, uh, the guys that were on his court, his official king's court, if you don't tell me my dream and interpret it for me, I'll rip you into pieces and I'll destroy all your houses. Right, and so he is a guy that takes uh, everything he wants by force. And in this moment, he's going to subject his people by asking them to worship an image uh, that he has set up. So as Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image for worship, he sets himself up as a type of antichrist. Now, obviously, this is in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus has been born. So it's almost an anti-God kind of thing. But what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up to be one who accepts worship in the place of God. And so when you think about the Antichrist, and when we get into the New Testament, and this person, the Antichrist, pops up in the book of Revelation and in other places in Scripture, that we're going to see that he will be someone who both demands worship of himself as an anti-God, and he'll also be someone who challenges the people to force them to worship him or die. And so here's what we find out from our God, though. Our God is so different our God doesn't force worship and demand worship. He gives us free will and choice to worship him. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar. God is complete in who he is. Nebuchadnezzar was a guy that was insecure. Our God is not like that. Our God knows who he is. He's secure in who he is. He doesn't need our worship. He invites our worship. We worship God because we've seen the demonstration of his love, of his goodness, of his mercy, and of his grace. And in response to what he's done for us, we turn around and offer him worship. That's what we have as Christians that's different from the rest of the world. It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's not expected of us by God to say, if you don't do this, I'll kill you. Or if you don't do this, you're out of conformity with the rest of the world. He invites us in. But with the threat of death, Nebuchadnezzar gets his wish. I want you to look at verse 7. 
It says, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, here's what I find amazing about this is just how quickly everyone can open their hearts to a false god. Now, obviously, it's with the threat of death on their hands, right? To go, look, you either do this or we throw you into a fire. So that probably has a little bit of a reason behind it. But this is a polytheistic culture. This is a culture where there are many gods. They worship all kinds of gods. And so it's nothing for them to once again have an image placed in front of them and to be told, you're going to worship this god or you're going to die. And they just go, okay, you know what? It's just another god. It's just another thing. And so I'm going to lay my face down in front of it. And I'll bow my heart to that God and I'll accept it as a, as a God that I worship and that's just fine. And before we go and point fingers at them and go, man, how dumb, how, how silly that they were, we need to look at our own lives and understand something that I believe it was C.S. Lewis who originally said this, that the heart of man is an idol-making factory. We can take anything and turn it into an idol. We can take anything and worship it if we're not careful. If we don't keep Jesus at the center of the throne of our heart, we'll take all kinds of things in life and we'll start bowing down to them. In the world of man and in our world, we can look at things and go, you know what? We bow down to money. We bow down to jobs. We make those things the most important things. We'll bow down to sports. We'll bow down to to academics. We'll say the pursuit of these things is the most important thing. We bow down to all kinds of things. We even will bow down to relationships. How many of us have done that? Where we've put somebody ahead of God and said, you're the most important thing in my entire universe. It's so easy to turn anything in life into an idol. And so we have to be cautious about that. If we aren't bowing to Jesus, we can easily bow to other things. And that's what we see happen with the people who gathered at the dedication of this statue. Everyone does what's expected of them. When the music plays, everyone bows down. Well, almost everyone. Check out the next passage here, verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. Now, here's where we find some good old-fashioned political posturing. I don't necessarily think this is anti-Semitism. I think this is just some guys in the government who see other guys in the government and they go, man, these guys were given positions of authority and they're over us. We're Babylonians. They are outside of the Babylonian kingdom. They're Jewish men and they've been given a positions of authority by the king and we don't like that. And so when everyone else bowed down and these men continue to stand up, these guys go, this is our chance to get them. This is our chance to get their positions of authority removed so that we can step up and take their place. And so when they, when the rest of the crowd bowed down, these three men stood up for what they believed. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, just write this down. You stand out when you stand up 
for what you believe about God. In this world, as followers of Jesus, as followers of the one true God, you stand out when you stand up for what you believe about the God you worship. You are going to be in so many situations in your life when everyone else will mock and ridicule the fact that you say that there is one God who offers one way to heaven. That the rest of the world wants there to be every avenue leads to heaven. And yet we have this exclusive claim as Christians that Jesus is the one way. And that God has provided the one avenue to get to heaven through his son Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And as Christians, we have to stand firm in that claim. And you will stand out in this culture when you stand up for what you believe about the God that you worship. And so we see that take place with these men. It wasn't difficult to see these men when everyone else around them had bowed down. I mean, when you look out across the plain of Dura and you see everyone on their faces and three guys standing up tallly, you don't miss them, right? Like they are standing out literally. And I don't know when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went and accepted the invitation to this event. I don't know if they knew what was going to be expected of them that day or not. We're not told. We're not told what the invitation looked like. We're not told what the RSVP was. We just know that they showed up and all of a sudden they're told you're going to hear music. And when you do this enormous statue that's here, you're going to bow down and worship it. Here's what I do know. They didn't make this decision in this moment. From the time these three men were young children, they had been taught about the God that they worship. They had been taught the commands of God. And they had made the decision years before as children and growing up as teenagers and young adults that if ever presented with the opportunity to bow down to an idol, they would reject that in order to stand true to their God. The first two commandments that God gave to his people in the 10 commandments are this, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is you shall not make of yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, on earth below, or the waters beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And so these men, they knew these commands. They didn't make this decision on the spot. And we need to take the same kind of emphasis as Christians that we need to know what we believe ahead of time. We need to make serious decisions about what we believe, what we're willing to do for God and what we're unwilling to do that follow the commands of God. Several years ago, um, my wife and I, we love to watch the TV show Survivor. Uh, it's just a good way to check out mentally sometimes and just watch something that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. And so there was an episode, a series uh, where they took the cast that was going to be on the island of Survivor, and they went to this place that, uh, that was the primary form of worship was the worship to, to Buddha. And now typically, when they do this show, they take everybody straight out to a remote island, they drop them off, and they go, okay, that's your camp, that's your camp, go. We'll see you in 40 days, right? Uh, in this instance, for this particular season, they took them to the mainland of this area that they were in. And when they brought them there, they brought them in front of a Buddhist temple, and, and the host said, listen, this isn't a worship service, but this is going to be a kind of a rite of passage into the season. We just want you to go into this temple and you're going to experience uh, a, a, um, uh, an opportunity to go through something that's ritualistic. And so they all went in. Uh, and the camera kept panning to this one girl and you could just see how nervous she was. And she was almost like shaking. And what you came to find out was that this one lady in the group was a Christian 
And as they went into this temple and she saw all the other contestants around her being asked to go through this uh, ceremony and people started bowing down and touching the Buddha and doing all these different things and she just had to remove herself from the situation. She walked out. She couldn't complete the ceremony. And after it was all over and they came back together as a group again, there was only one person that was asked a question after that event and it was her. And the host said, you didn't complete the ceremony. What happened? We told you beforehand this wasn't a worship service. And she said, I know you told me it wasn't a worship service, but it felt like worship. And I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And my faith and belief in him says that I will not bow my face to anyone but him. And you could just see the faces of the other contestants on that season going, what in the world? Who is this person? And the the host asks, do you think this is going to hurt you in the game? And she says, I don't know, but I refuse to bow to anyone but Jesus Christ. She displayed the same kind of attributes that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in this moment, where she said, when presented with an opportunity to be put in front of everyone and to stand out because I stand up for what I believe, I'm willing, even if it costs me, to not bow my face to an idol. And so for us, the next thing, if you're taking notes, is to write this down. We need to function from internal convictions, not external pressures. There are going to be a lot of pressures that we face in life to worship other things. There are going to be a lot of pressures that we face in life to go against the commands of God. But we need to operate from internal convictions that we've made because of our belief in God, because of our knowledge of Scripture, the things that God has taught us through His Word. We need to stand firm in those things. Now, as you can imagine, word of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's rebellion gets back to King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what we find when we go back to him, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now listen, we, we know he already knew the answer to that question. Of course they didn't serve his gods. Daniel had made that uh, apparent in chapter 2. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were with him. He knows that these men worship Yahweh. But he asks, Is it true you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, here's the first thing we see. They're given a second chance. More than likely, that indicates that they're pretty highly ranked officials in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Because for any old Joe Schmo, he would have just killed them immediately. These guys probably have a place of prominence and importance that's high enough that he goes, listen, guys, I'm going to give you one more chance. You're going to hear the music play. You go again, and you bow down, and you worship in front of that statue. But here's the second thing. He gives them an ultimatum. He says, you either worship this time or you die, and you die by fire. I'll throw you into this blazing furnace. And then he asks this question, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. King Nebuchadnezzar in this moment demonstrates unmatched pride. He is a guy that just says, you think that you have a God that can worship you from my hand? Who's going to do that? What God is more powerful than me? 
Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, is putting himself at this moment above the gods he even claims that he worships. Because he's saying, there's not a God out there that can save you from me. I am more powerful than the gods. And so we see him telling these men who had even been present when Daniel had interpreted the dream for the king earlier, that if they don't worship, that their God can't save them. And so what does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do to respond? Look at verse 16. It says, the men replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. This is one of the most bold statements in all of scripture. In fact, if you have your Bible open, you want to highlight that, underline it, circle some things there. This is bold. These guys look at the king who just threatened them and they say, we don't even need to defend ourselves in this matter to you. This isn't worth a trial. It's not worth our defense. It's not worth us even being given a second chance. We don't need to defend ourselves. King, what you're doing is indefensible. Forcing people to worship, that's indefensible. Saying you'll burn people alive because they don't worship your image and what you've set up, that's indefensible. What we're doing, standing up for our God, we don't have to defend ourselves before you in that. And the truth is the same for us as Christians. We don't necessarily have to defend ourselves when we go against culture. There are times that Jesus is going to give you opportunities to speak into things in culture when people demand things of you, but it is not a requirement that we make our point known and our point valid. We just have to say, I serve the God of heaven and I'm not going to do anything that goes against him. Everything else in the world is offensive and objectable. My serving God is not. It's not indefensible. They felt no need to defend themselves or their decision, but they wouldn't compromise in order to satisfy the king's ego. And so they say this to him, the God we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now here's what I think they knew that we need to get a, grab a hold of this morning. In life or in death, they would be delivered. Right, and so when they say, king, here's what we know, our God is able to rescue us from your hand, and he will. I think they knew. If God comes through for us on this side of life, then he will have rescued us from your hand. If God allows us to die, he still will have rescued us from your hand. And here's why I think that's true. And if you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Death is just a doorway into eternal life. And they recognize that. These guys recognize, King, you listen, God is able to save us and we believe he will. And we're gonna stake our claim that he will. And whether that's through being rescued or being killed, if you kill us, that just is the doorway to life with him. And we're happy to be there with him. In the New Testament, Paul talked about this idea of living and dying for Jesus. Here's what he said in Philippians chapter one, uh, verses 20 through 24. Paul writes and says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's necessary for me to remain in the body. 
Listen, it's difficult to have power over someone who can say to you, look, if I live, that's great. That means I'm going to be fruitful in my service of the king. And if I die, that's awesome too, because that means I get to go and be with Jesus. It is difficult to have power over someone who says, I love living and I can be okay with dying. Both of those things. In fact, dying is actually better because that means I get to be in heaven with my savior. You can't control someone that has that kind of mentality. Hey, I'm going to follow Jesus in this life. And if you kill me because you don't like what I'm doing, I'm going to be with Jesus in the life to come. And that's where we need to find ourselves. Because as we think about our following of Jesus, we see ourselves in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They displayed great confidence in God when they spoke to the king. And they said, King, our God will save us. We can have that same confidence. He'll save us in life, but if he doesn't, he'll save us through death. And so that's what we get. They don't stop, though, with this idea of God saving them in life. Look at verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. And so for us, this is a tremendously difficult thing, but it's so important. Because we're not God, we don't know how God is going to use our circumstances for his glory and for our good. So we have to trust him no matter what he does. So when we see these men stand in front of the king and say, our God is able to save us, O king, and he will. But even if he doesn't, the way that we would like him to, we'd like him to save us from this fire. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow to you. And so when we think about this, we know that we have to maintain our faith in God no matter. God is able to save us from our trials. He's able to take you from the difficulties that you're walking through, and he's able to save you from them. He's able to deliver you out of the difficulties that you're facing. He's able to deliver you out of all the hardship you're facing, and he can. But even if he doesn't, then you still maintain your faith and trust in him. Because through these things, God is refining us. He's showing us how to be more like Jesus. Even if God allows you to go through the fire, you can still praise him. And we're going to see why in this next passage. Look at this next section, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and their other clothes, were bound and they were thrown into the blazing furnace. Now those things are important in details as we get to this because as, as people will say, man, you know what, maybe that wasn't such a big fire after all. Maybe it was just a, kind of a small thing. Maybe it was like a campfire and they kind of got tossed in and they just bounced around a little bit and, and it didn't really catch them on fire. Uh, we see though that they're bound with ropes, they're bound in these clothing. This should have all been very flammable material, Right? These should be things that would have caught fire and killed them. And so we see this in verse 23. These three men firmly tied up. Oh, excuse me. Let's go back uh, to 22. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. So here's one thing I want you to notice. 
We could also make this, this statement or people who read this story who don't believe in the power of God to save can say, well, again, the fire wasn't all that great. He says, listen, these men, these strong soldiers who had bound and tied Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they took them up, probably this furnace had a top opening that they would have been thrown into. And then at the bottom, there was a doorway or a window that they could have walked out of or seen into, the king could see into. But as they took them up, the flames were so high and so hot that it leapt out and caught the soldiers on fire and they burned to death. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall in to the flames. And here's what we see next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 24 leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. So the ropes have fallen off, the ropes have been burned off, but otherwise completely unharmed. And he says, in the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now we're not told in this whether or not this is Jesus who makes an Old Testament appearance or if it's an angel. Later on, Nebuchadnezzar is going to say that it's an angel of the Lord. In different places in the Old Testament, we know that the angel of the Lord is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so we don't have to get completely caught up in this. I personally believe that this is Jesus. And Nebuchadnezzar is right in saying he looks like a son of the gods. For us, we would say he is the son of the God. And he looks in and he says, in the middle of a fire that's seven times hotter than it was at the first, he looks in and says, I see four guys and one of them is bright, blazing brighter even than the fire itself. He makes him out clearly. He goes, there are four guys and they're walking around in the furnace. And so when I think about this, they're unbound, they're unharmed. And you kind of go, well, man, why didn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that moment just walk out? We know they can because we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in just a minute call them out. And when he calls them, they come out. They just come walking out of the fire. Why don't they? Here's what I think is going on. I think that they stay in the fire because that's where God is. In their darkest moment and in their time of greatest trial, when they're in the middle of the hottest place imaginable, they look around and God is right there with them. And that's true for us, that it's so easy when we go through our hardships and difficulties in life to ask the question, where's God? And the truth is, is that he's right there with you in the middle of the flames. So here's what we find. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, and their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Uh, I did youth ministry for a long time, and one of the highlights of doing youth ministry is campfires with kids. Uh, that's always a blast. And I can remember one time with my first youth group, uh, we took these kids out to my parents' house, and we had this big stack of wood that we were going to light up, and... Um, uh, my brother was actually with us. He was kind of helping out with the, the uh, camp out that night in the fire and, and um, accidentally uh, used gasoline on the fire instead of diesel fuel. 
And, uh, and when he went to light it, one of my seventh grade kids was standing right beside him and they went to toss the match in and immediately the thing just exploded in a flame. We're all standing back watching and this flame just engulfed them. It just went over their heads. And when they turned around with eyes as big as saucers, like what in the world just happened? You could just see eyebrows singed off, hair singed, smoke coming off of them. Like it was a mess, right? And yet when these guys come walking out of the fire and it says everybody crowds around them, their skin's not burned, their clothes are not burned, their hair's not singed, they don't even smell of smoke. Listen, that's a miracle in and of itself. I don't know if you've ever spent much time around campfires. Smoke just follows you. Uh, I was always told smoke follows beauty, and that's why it would always follow me around. I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but that's what people told me. And so I just went ahead and believed it. But here's what I want to say. When you're around a campfire, you will smell like smoke. And these guys come walking out, and nothing's wrong with them. There's no smell of smoke. There's no damaging effects from the fire. And so here's what I want to do to close our time up this morning. I want to just make some applications today from this text. And I want us to see three things that are going to be really important for us just as we continue to follow after Jesus. Number one is this. God allows the faithful to be tested. God allows the faithful to be tested. When we get to a place where we go through difficult times, where there's trials and there's difficulties in our life, where there's hardships, when there's tests of our faith, we need to know and understand as Christians, God allows that to happen. And he uses those tests often for bringing him glory and for refining us. In the book of James chapter one, verses two through four, James write this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance so let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so James tells us, listen, when you go through trials of all kinds, you can take joy in that. God uses those things to shape you. He uses those things as you persevere through them to bring you to maturity. That's God's way of shaping you to be more like Jesus so you can be okay with that. We often ask the wrong question when we're going through trials. The question we often ask is, why is God doing this to me? Anybody ever asked that question before? I know I have. Why is God doing this? Here's the question that I think we should be asking. What is God doing in my life, through my life, for his glory and for my spiritual growth? Instead of saying, why is God doing this? We ask the question, what's God doing in and through my life for his glory and for my spiritual growth, my maturity. That's where we need to see ourselves. Here's number two. We have to be willing to act on what we say we believe. If we're gonna follow after Jesus, we have to be willing to act on what we say we believe. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood in front of the king and said, our God is able to save us and he will, but even if he doesn't, we're still not gonna bow down. When he said, all right, heat it up seven times greater and throw them in. They didn't turn around, see the fire getting hotter and go, oh, you know what? We were just kidding. I think if you will give us that third chance now, after all, we'll head right back out to that statue and we will bow down to it. We thought this was a bluff. You were just playing. We didn't know the fire was going to be even hotter than it was before. Like, scary. Uh, we don't want to go through that. They stood their ground. They stood on what they believed. They said, our God is able to save us. He can extinguish the flames. He can put them out. He can send an angel to kill everybody before we even get to the flames. He can do whatever he wants. He can keep us out of the fire. We believe he's able to save us. 
But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to you. Are you and I willing to act on what we say we believe? God's goodness is often most obvious in the places of darkness. And so we need to learn to see him in those things. In your moments of hurt and in the trials you experience in your life, it's important to know that God doesn't withdraw from you from the, in those moments. God steps towards you. It's in the place of your deepest hurts that you can believe and know God is right beside you. Nebuchadnezzar, in his final thoughts in the chapter, give us our last application point. I want us to see this together. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. So here's the three things that Nebuchadnezzar says that happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in God at all times because this is what happened. They trusted God. Is that true of us? Do we trust God no matter what comes our way? Here's number two. He said they defied the king's commands. For us in this life, we should defy godless commands. We are people of two kingdoms. We are citizens of the United States of America and we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. And when the things that the kingdom of God requires and asks of us go against the commands of our country, our nation, our world, there has to be at some point some civil disobedience where we'll say we cannot bow to these ungodly things. We have to stand on our convictions about who God is and the kingdom that he's building. And so for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they defied the godless command of the king. Here's number three. He says they were willing to lay down their lives instead of worshiping any god except their own. So we have to be willing to die rather than to worship or serve other gods. This is where it comes down to some big things for us as Christians. That if we're going to say we follow after Jesus, if we're going to be serious about that, then it may mean, whether in some time in the immediate future or sometime in the distant future, that you have to lay down your life for your king. And to be willing to say, before I would worship some other God, before I would be part of another kingdom, I would rather die. And so Nebuchadnezzar looks at these men. He sees their faith. He sees the power of their God to deliver them. And verse 29 says, Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their house be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so again, we see how ruthless he is. He's kind of turning this into a political thing again. Listen, God saved them. If anybody says anything against them, I'll kill you too. Nebuchadnezzar has a long way to go to figure out what it really looks like to worship God, but he's seen God's wisdom on display. He's seen God's power on display. And in this moment, he recognizes the power of God. And I wonder for us what it looks like as we close up this morning, as Kyle comes back to lead us in one last song to have these same kinds of things where we would say, God, we want to stand firm in our faith in you. We want to know you and we want to follow you at all times. And God will defy godless commands. And then we will even lay down our lives if that's what it requires in order to be a part of your kingdom. And so for us, here's what I want us to do this morning. I just want to lead you to pray. 
And I want to ask you just to pray these simple things and to pray through some things with me that'll just help guide us through taking this passage of scripture and applying it to our lives. So if you will, just join me and pray. And first of all, would you just pray and do something that goes against the grain of our, our um, normal thought process. Will you just thank God for the trials that he allows you to go through? More than likely, you have something in your life right now that's difficult that you're journeying through. Would you just thank God that he's allowed that in your life because he has a plan to grow your faith through it and to bring you to maturity through it? And then second, will you ask God to reveal himself to be ever close to you during the trial that you're walking through? Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.